We began a sermon series uh, we've never done before, 15 years of our church history, simply called Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And what we're doing is just looking at the last three days of the life of Christ. And last week, of course, we talked about Friday, the darkest day in the history of mankind, when the Son of God bore on himself the penalty and the punishment for sin, evil, and injustice. And then this upcoming Sunday, we will celebrate the greatest day in the world as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ as a stone was rolled away and he came forth defeating Satan, sin, and death. Is that good news? It's amazing news. Amazing news. But there's Saturday. Saturday doesn't get talked much about. Maybe one of the reasons why Saturday doesn't get talked much about is because there's not a whole lot in the Gospels about what happened on Saturday. I tell you right now, it's a challenge for a preacher to talk about something that may not be explicitly talked about, but I think God will speak this morning. In the Gospels, all you find out about Saturday is that there's this one detail about guards being posted to watch the tomb, but otherwise we're not told a whole lot. There's... Nothing much happening. We know this about the disciples. The disciples have been up for two straight days, and they wake up on Saturday morning, and we know that they sort of gather and huddle together in fear, out of fear that they would be captured. And they are in a city that was shouting and crying out, crucify him, crucify him, only hours before, and now it's deadly silent. The crowds have gone home. And now the disciples have to deal with this. Their Jesus is dead. Well, hear this. Along with this, his death went the death of their dreams. Their dreams and hopes for what they thought would be a new kingdom on earth. An earthly kingdom where Israel would once again be the sovereign nation. Along with Jesus' death was dashed, their hopes and dreams. Church, you know what Saturday is? The Saturday is the day after your dreams have died and you get up the next morning and you have to keep living. Saturday is the day that that person that you love, who you watch suffer for weeks, months, maybe years, passes away. Saturday is the day where the day after your soul gets crushed, but the day before it gets answered. Saturday is the day after you pray for something, but the day before it gets answered. Saturday, as one theologian called it, is the in-between day, in-between sadness and joy, in-between death and life, in-between grief and hope. Saturday. Saturday, the day of deafening silence. Does anybody know the kind of silence where you feel it. It's the kind of silence you feel. You don't hear anything, but you feel it. You ever wonder, why is there even a Saturday? God didn't have to. 
Friday, he could have been resurrected. He dies on the cross. It could have been just a matter of hours where God could have resurrected the Son of God. Why? Why is there a Saturday? Why is there a Saturday? Why does God wait? Why does God wait? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Grief Observed. It's a book he wrote after his wife, just a few years, passed away tragically of cancer. Some of you know his story. He waited until he was like 57 to be married. But just a few years with the love of his wife and processing it, he wrote this book. And there's a portion here where he says this. He says, when you're happy, so happy you have no sense of needing God. So happy you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself to turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcome with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. Go to him when all other help is vain. Go to him and what do you find? You find a door slammed shut in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. What could this mean? Why is he so present in our time of prosperity and yet so very absent, and yet so very absent to help in our time of trouble? Does anybody know what a Saturday feels like? And I ask, anybody going through a Saturday? Anybody been through some Saturdays? Of course you have. Of course I have. What do you do? What do I do? I joked around with the 9 o'clock service this morning that today isn't going to be one of those uh, emotionally uplifting Sundays. And then I joked, of course, if you come to New Community, you're going, are there any Sundays that are emotionally uplifting? I'm glad you laughed at that because, you know. There's a story in the Gospels where two people went through excruciating four days of silence and Saturdays. The trouble with this story is many of you are very familiar with it, so you're going to want to jump to the back and go, I know how it ends. But what I need you and me to do this morning, church, listen, is we need to enter the story. We need to hear it, feel it, smell it. And as much as possible, agonize with these two people and wonder what it must have been like when somebody you love dies, when your prayers don't get answered, when your marriage blows up in your face, when the door is shut for the 10th time. The story is found in John 11. Turn your Bibles with me as we turn to that. John 11. John 11, verse 1. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. See, you're already going, I know how this story ends. I know, I need you to hang in there with me. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. 
Verse 3, so the sisters send word to Jesus. Jesus, by the way, is about a day and a half walking distance away. Day and a half. Hold on to that. Jesus says, Lord, the one you love, the one you love is sick. How would you like to be known as that? Jesus doesn't even have to say your name. The one you love. The one you dearly love. But here's a new category of thought. The one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. Can I spell it out for you? No, 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 no. The one you love, they don't get sick. No, the one you love have their prayers answered. No, the one you love, don't lose people that they love. No, the one you love, and yet we are introduced to a new category of thought that you and I have wrestled with. No, the one you love. I don't have to say your name. The one you love is what? Is sick. Do you struggle with that? Immediately, we're faced with the one you love, the people Jesus dearly loves, is sick. Here's a sermon point, and I need you to sit on this for a little bit. The love of Jesus Christ may include trouble for you. The love of Christ may include trouble for you. Can you put that slide up, please? His loving presence, his loving plan for your life may and does often include experience of trouble, suffering, and hardship. Can I just ask you a question? Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle with that? Because we've operated from the one you love. Oh, no, no. If you, the one you love may include trouble hardship and suffering. I've been by the bedside of people who just recently given their life to Jesus at the hospital where they heard the news, it's a tumor. And I've had people look me in the eyes and go, I gave my life to Jesus. He says he loves me. Why am I sick? The one you love is sick. Real quickly, you guys, a couple things. If you look carefully, you'll see that Martha and Mary actually handle this tremendous difficulty actually by praying. And I want to just say something up front. When Saturdays come, it is absolutely okay to contend with a God. It is absolutely okay to pray. It is absolutely okay to pray for healing, for restoration, for justice to be done. You hear me? Do you hear me? It's absolutely, as a matter of fact, it's absolutely a right thing to go before God, not as a last resort, but as a first resort. Go to God with prayer. Contend with God as a first resort, not as a last resort. You ever hear this phrase, well, there's nothing else left to do but pray? Anybody? Do you ever wonder? Do you ever wonder? How do you feel if somebody came to you and go, Peter, listen, I've literally looked at every single resource. I've talked just about everybody and nobody, not a single soul on earth could help me. And I was thinking, who's like the last person I could ask? Oh, you. Can I ask you, can you help me? Would you feel honored? Would I feel honored? And yet, how many of us do that 
same thing to God. As a last resort, I got nothing else to, I got no, I'm just going to, and then secondly, more importantly, you need to get this. You notice the basis of their prayer? The basis of their prayer is the one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. They don't go, the one who serves you faithfully, help me. The one who obeys you faithfully, help me. The one who church, attends church, help me. The one who all does all this justice work, help me. Their aunt's prayer is what? The one you love is sick. Do you know why many of us, when we pray to God, there's insecurity? Do you know why when we pray, we wonder, will you ever listen? Because if the basis of our prayer is, I've obeyed you, help me. I've served you, help me I've been a good person help me deep down inside there's a part of us that says maybe I haven't been good enough maybe I haven't served enough maybe I haven't done enough what's the basis of their prayer listen the one you love is sick whether you go to God on the gospel and the truth of it or you go to God on your works will make all the difference in terms of how you pray, the one you love. And then we find the most incredible thing, verse 4. When he heard this, as Jesus, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory. It's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. What? What? Now, just a couple chapters before this, Jesus almost says the exact same thing. And I want to take you there briefly because it gives us more context. In John chapter 9, in John chapter 9, you don't have to turn your Bibles there. I'll give you the verses. In John chapter 9, we find the story of Jesus healing this man who's born blind. And here's what we see in verse 2, John chapter 9, verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. You know what the question is? There's why, why, why did this happen to him? This is an absolutely tragic thing, Jesus. Why, why did this happen to him? Why, why is he sick? Whose fault is it? They're asking the why question. Whose fault is it? His parents or his? Now, you can't fault them. This is the common wisdom of the time. The common wisdom of time is if you do something bad, then bad things will happen to you. If you do something good, then good things will happen to you. Simple cause and effect. We call it today karma. So there, Jesus, what did he do to deserve this? What did he do to get this? It's alive and well today, 2,000 years later. We call it moralism. Why is this happening? Well, if you do good things, then good things will happen to you. If you do bad things, then bad things will happen to you. Simple cause and effect. So if bad things happen to you, then you must have done something wrong. Can I just say something? If you resonate with say amen. Can I just say boldly today that Jesus Christ comes down to earth and obliterates that cause and effect dynamic once and for all. Because on the cross, Jesus says, I give you what you don't deserve, and it's called grace. And I, you don't get what you do deserve, which is mercy. He cancels once and for all the cause and effect dynamic. I'm so sorry, even as I preach this, that there's some of you that walked away from the church. You walked away from God altogether because you grew up in a church where somebody said, are you sick? Maybe you're not praying enough. Are you in financial hardship? Maybe you need more faith. And you simply said, if I live that way, then either I'm going to be mad at myself all the time because I'm going, I'm not doing enough, or I'm going to be mad at God, which is you owe me. By the way, can I just say this? Do you know why? our natural hearts are drawn to moralism 
because we want to be in control. You think it's just accidental? People go, I kind of like that moralism. How do you keep God in control? I'm good. I'm being good. I'm being good right now. You owe me. I'm being good right now. Don't send these things into my life. We're drawn to it. And that's the reason why you struggle with the gospel. Do you know how else this is manifest in our culture? There's an irreligious version. It's a cynicism. What's cynicism? Suffering, trials, hardship come into your life. Do you know what that proves? There's no God. If there is, he's indifferent or he doesn't love you. So you know what? You don't owe God anything. Live any way you want to. What is that? I'm in control. You know what else that is, church? Can I just say this? Those are pat answers. Those are pat answers. How do you know? How does anybody know? That's, and those are spiritual dead ends. Moralism, I'm good. God has to bless me. Cynicism, there is no God. So how can suffering? It doesn't matter. Those are ways that we maintain control of our lives and we control God and we control others. What does Jesus do? He obliterates this by saying the following. Verse 3, neither this man or his parents sinned, but this happened so that the word for God might be displayed in his life. And the root word for the word displayed is the word shine. And it describes something that's dirty or obstructed, and then it gets cleaned off. It gets polished, and it gets buffed. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Can everybody look up here? Do you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying to you and me, not just disciples, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. There is no cause and effect here. Maybe God is present in this too. Maybe God is present in infirmity and weakness as he is in strength and health. I don't know if you heard me. Maybe God's presence is here too. Maybe, maybe God's silence is not his absence. Maybe his hiddenness is not his abandonment. God can't be possibly. Maybe God is present when to our human eyes we say, how could anything come out of this? Maybe God's work could be displayed in this too. Maybe God's glory could shine through this too. But it doesn't make any sense, Peter. Maybe. And if you've been around our church for any length of time, you've heard this massive, massive truth principle that we find in Scripture, and that is this. Not everything happens for a reason, but in everything that happens, God is able to glorify himself, bring good to us, and bring salvation and healing to the world if we will trust him. Do you believe this, church? See, the amazing promise of Scripture, I need you to hang in there. 
The amazing promise of scripture is that on every single Saturdays that come into our lives, that God has plans for us and God has plans for others that will ultimately display his glory. The promise of scripture is that there isn't just one or two purposes, but there are hundreds of purposes that are interwoven in such a way by a sovereign, loving God that will display his power, his love, and his glory in our lives. Is that a had answer, I would say it's the deepest answer. This happened so that God's glory that sometimes gets obscured, sometimes gets hidden, might be displayed, might be shown. See, this isn't just theoretical for some of us. This isn't just theoretical for some of us. This is, this is, this is real life. You're in a Saturday. You've been through a number of Saturdays and you're sitting there going, Peter, I've been hurt. Peter, I've been rejected. Peter, my marriage blew up in my face. Peter, tumors. And maybe what God, maybe what God would say to you and me, maybe what God would have us do this morning is instead of asking why, simple cause and effect, karma, maybe the question that God would have us ask is this, church, what can God do? What can God do? Peter, what can God do in this Saturday to demonstrate his glory? What can God do to demonstrate his redemptive love? What can God do to bring salvation and healing to others? And by the way, if you're sitting there going, I need some assurance, man. How how do I know how do I know what God can do? Can you, can you point to a time ever in history when we saw what God can do through tragedy, suffering, and loss? Can you ever point me, Peter, ever to a time in history when men acted with evil and injustice and God brought redemption and salvation out of it? And there is a time in history where we saw what God can do. Amen? So if you're somebody sitting here this morning going, is there anything that God can do through what I've been through, what I am going through, what I can go through to bring salvation, redemption, glory to himself and good to me? The answer is the cross. The answer is the cross. Saturdays. And the story goes, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. And her sister and Lazarus. By the way, if you're saying, why, why are you telling us this, John? Because John's going, because you're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you next. Verse 6, and yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. What you need to know is that the NIV translators chickened out. Do you know what it literally says? It literally says, therefore. Therefore. When Jesus learned that Lazarus was sick, he stayed for two more days.
verse 7. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Translation, can we just moment of levity? You know what they're saying? They're saying, Jesus, when they try to stone you, sometimes they miss, and they hit us. So let's not do that. Not a good idea. You think they really care about Jesus? Verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see this world light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. I think what Jesus is simply saying there is, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity. There's going to come a time when light will be snuffed out. In other words, there's going to come a time when I'm no longer going to be on earth. And there's a truth here that I need you to learn. There's a truth here that I need you to learn, that I need you to learn while I'm still here. Verse 11, after he said this, he went taught to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Verse 12, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps though, he'll get better. Anybody ever give Jesus medical advice? Jesus, you need to do that. You need to do this. Goes on, verse 13, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is sick. You dummies. Verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Verse 16, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, and I'm going to say this exactly like the way I think Thomas said it. Let us throw also, then we may die with him. You know what Thomas is? Thomas is Eeyore. Who said that? Somebody say that. He is Eeyore. He is Eeyore. He is Eeyore. If you have three kids, one of your kids is an Eeyore, by the way. So go home and decide who that one is. Eeyore. Thomas is Eeyore. Everything is bad. Everything is always bad. This guy's going, Eeyore, Eeyore. Thomas. Thomas. Verse 17. On his arrival. Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. I got really emotional this week preparing for this sermon. When I came on this verse. And I got emotional this morning. Because here I have how I envision this scene. I envision the scene, Mary and Martha at their home. Their brother Lazarus is lying there. They don't even know why he is sick. They have no medicine at this time for stuff like this. And as they're wiping the sweat off of his brow, they're saying to him, you're going to be okay, Lazarus. We told Jesus. He's coming. Lazarus, we've seen Jesus heal total strangers. Lazarus, we've seen Jesus stand out in the hot sun for hours healing people he doesn't even know. You? We don't have to say your name. He's coming. He said, 
and Lazarus dies. And the townspeople are like, we have to bury your brother. No. He said, Jesus said, he'll be here next day. We have to bury your brother. Martha, Mary. Oh, he said. He promised. Third day. Fourth day. Finally, they wrap him up. Put him in a tomb. And the stone is rolled. And the four days, by the way, is significant because in that time, they believed in their superstition thinking that a spirit of a person hovered over a dead body for three days. But by the fourth day when the body began to decompose, even in their mindset, they said, oh, that spirit's like, I can't go into that body. We're done. In other words, even in their superstition thinking, there's absolutely no hope for Lazarus. Do you know, I got emotional because this isn't just some theoretical story. I've sat on the other side of the coffee table. I've sat on the other side hearing you say to me, he promised. He loves me. He says he loves me. I've held on to that promise. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Peter, I've delighted in him, but I'm sorry. The desires of my heart to be satisfied, they're long gone. I'm sorry, Peter. There is no, there is nothing that can be done. The desires of my heart that can be fulfilled, they're long gone. I've sat on the other side of the table to hear a married couple who've wanted to have a child for years and they've gone through third or fourth round of in vitro fertilization only to hear the doctor say, there is no baby. I've sat on the other side of the table to hear a parent who've gotten their news that their six-year-old child has a terminal illness and they pray to God in their silence. I've been on the other side of the table when somebody for the 12th time says from their job application, there is no job for you here. I've sat on the other side of the coffee table to hear a woman say to me, my boyfriend of four years who I was engaged to broke up with no reason. I've sat on the other side of the table and the question is, I thought he loved me. And in that moment, on that Saturday, you and I have an incredibly critical, critical question to ask. And that is this. Are we going to judge our circumstances by his love? Or are we going to judge his love through our circumstances? Are you and I going to sit there and judge our Saturdays through the lens of his love? Or will you and I go, this is what your love means through the circumstances? Church, are you with me this morning? Church, are you with me this morning? Have any of you ever been there? How do I trust him, man? 
story goes. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Anybody, is that, is that remarkable faith? Anybody? Martha gets a bad rap. That is one remarkable faith. Verse 23, then Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, for Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day, Jesus. And that's what the Jews believe, that all the righteous will one day at the very end of time will all be resurrected. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here, is it? Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then Jesus asked the questions to you and me, then maybe it was easy to believe when we were 10 or 13, but when you're 25, when you're 38, when you're looking at someone you love dying, when you look at someone you love suffer, when you've waited for something for weeks and months and years, it becomes much harder, and that is this question, do you, Jesus says, verse 27, believe. He's saying, do you Still trust me, knowing that I could have done otherwise. Do you know what trust is? I'm going to put this up here, and here's the thing. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. For those of you that are sitting there going, I don't mean that, I'm going to ask that you say it anyway, maybe as a prayer. Here's what trusting and believing Jesus means on a Saturday. It means this. Can you put that up there, please? It means that I know that he can, but sometimes he waits, and in the meantime, I could trust him. Say this with me. I know that he can, but sometimes he waits, and I could trust him in the meantime. Say it one more time. I know that he can, but sometimes he waits, and I could trust him in the meantime. One last time. I know that he can, but sometimes he waits, and I could trust him. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Verse 30, 27, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Verse 29, when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jews saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Verse 34, where have you laid him? He asked, come and see, Lord. They replied, verse 25, Jesus wept. And the Jews said, behold, how he loved him. They were wrong, you know. Do you know why? Behold, how he loved him. Him, I'm going to tell you right now, the love of Jesus is never in the past tense. It's always present. Always eternal. Always everlasting. 
His love is also not ever in the future. I'm going to tell you this every week until you get it. God will love you is not the gospel. God loves you, period, is the gospel. Can I get an amen? His love for you is never in the present. It's never in the future. It's always present. That's why he weeps. I saw a verse in the book of Psalms that I had never seen before as I was studying this that blew my mind. Look what it says in verse Psalm 56, 8. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. And you have recorded each one in your book. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. And what that verse is literally saying is it's giving picture to what is happening in John 11. And that is Jesus, the Son of God, has so knit his heart together with ours. He is so bound. He has so bound. The Son of God has so bound his heart with ours that he has no choice but to feel our pain. He has no choice but to be responsive to our pain. And as a fallen, sinful, wicked human being, the closest thing that I could feel, even remotely, is how I feel towards my children. It's like when you have kids, it's like there's a chain that's been chained to, from your heart to theirs. Because the moment that they're born, you know that you can never, ever be happy as long as they're miserable, as long as they're struggling. You're heart to sort of automatically get so bound and knitted with their hearts. And yet, what the scripture tells us is, why doesn't Jesus just walk up to the tomb and say, watch this, Lazarus come forth. Why is he weeping? Why is he weeping? Why is he weeping? Because even the prospect of a resurrection is not enough to alleviate his grief. Even the sure resurrection of his friend that he loves is not enough to alleviate his sorrow. And you and I ask, can I trust him? Why wouldn't we trust someone like him? Do you really think someone like this would make you wait one more second than he thinks you need to? Do you think someone like this would perform spiritual surgery in our hearts and our souls unless he absolutely thought it was needed? Do you really think someone like this would keep things from your life and my life that would give us joy? Do you really think someone like him would cause us harm? Do you really think someone like him who has so bound up his heart with ours that at the sight of a friend who's dead, even though he could resurrect him from the dead, he can't help but feel and be responsive. You can't trust him. I can't trust him. 
He cried out to him, do you know what you're doing? We cry out to him, how dare you? Verse 38, I'm almost done. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, by this time there's a bad order because he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of your people standing here so that they may believe, they may trust that you sent me. Verse 43, when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now I think, by the way, Jesus said that because everybody was sitting there going, we're not moving, dude. Peter, I know how this story ends. My life story is still being written. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm in a Saturday that's lasted for more than four days. What do I do? You can respond in one of three ways. One, despair. Despair is when you and I go, it's always going to be Friday. There is no other. It will always be Friday. It will always be like this. Some of you are there right now. You are saying, there is no other way. It will always be Friday. Secondly, this also is easier. It's denial. It's pat answers. It's the Christianese. God works with us. It's simplistic answers. It's some of us meditating and numbing our pain through alcohol, through sex, through drugs, through overworking, through keeping ourselves busy. It's just being in denial. Or third, and this takes enormous courage, and that is you could wait. Waiting has nothing to do with just sitting around going, well, you know, I'm just going to be passive here. Waiting is the most active thing Scripture calls us to do because waiting requires you and me to wait with hopeful expectancy. The psalmist says in Psalm 62, 1, God alone, my soul waits in silence. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. My hope is from him. I'll tell you what waiting is. Waiting in hopeful expectancy is a posture in life that says, God, I could easily ask the question why, but I'm going to choose to ask, what can you do? 
because not everything happens for a reason, but in everything that happens, you're able to bring glory to you, good to me, and bring salvation to others. I will choose to wait because I know that you can, but sometimes you wait, but I could trust you in the meantime. It's waiting, and waiting is whatever you do. Waiting, whatever you do, you do it with God. You do with God. You complain with God. You cry out with God. You doubt with God. You rest with God. You wait with God. And when you wait with him, here are the things that could happen. One, it could refine your commitment to Jesus. What do I mean? I'm going to put this point up here. You could wait with God on Saturday that you can't in any other day because on Saturday you know that your only hope is Jesus. You could wait with God on Saturday that you can't any other day because on Saturday you know that your only hope is Jesus. And if there's one lesson I've learned as a follower of Jesus all of these years, it's this. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I don't come to realize that he is all that I need until he is all that I have. I will never come to realize that he is all that I need until he is all that I have. And Saturdays puts a microscope into me going, I can be with you on this, I can any other day. You're my only hope. Second thing that happens on Saturday is you and I are absolutely shattered from our delusion of control. Please listen. It's not until you and I lose control of our lives that we finally come to grips with the truth and that is that we never had it. Can I get an amen? For so many of us, this is at the essence of all of this and why we struggle with Saturdays, why we struggle with Saturdays because, and I'll just speak for me, for a proud, arrogant person like me, I can't realize this truth that I am not in control of anything on a normal day until Saturdays come. I am thinking that I am powerful enough, I am gifted enough, I am smart enough, I am resourceful enough every single day of my life until the thing that I put my hope, my joy, my satisfaction and my meaning is gone and it is at that point that I finally come to realize I am not in control I never have been and I never will be but thank God there's someone who is in control who is much wiser and loving than I am and he loves me and he knows my name when Saturdays come and you and I are confronted with that delusion of control, you could respond in one of two ways. And I've seen this for 30 years. You could either respond by becoming harder and more bitter, or you could become more humble and more surrendered. You could choose to say, I ought to be in control. I deserve to be in control. I am capable of being in control. Why am I not in control? I want to be in control and become harder and more bitter at the loss of control. Or you could humble yourself, surrender and saying, God, you're creator, I'm creation. Let thy will be done. 
Saturdays will not leave you the same. They will not. And the third thing that happens is it makes you more useful to others. Again, confession. In my self-absorption, in my self-centeredness, which is how I operate most of my days, because I'm constantly consumed with who's not caring for me, who's not paying attention to me, who's not encouraging me, who's not affirming me, me. What Saturdays do is it causes me to realize, Peter, do you realize that you have a God who has bound up his heart with yours, that he feels sorrow? Do you have a God who collects tears in a bottle? And my question to you and I is, when you walk into a room, is that how you respond? When you and I walk into a room, do you and I go, who is in sorrow? Who is weeping? Who is hurting? And how can I be a minister to that? Are you a safe person that people come around? Are you a safe, empathetic person that people know will not be harsh with you, rude with you? Are you a safe person who is able to feel compassion and empathy? Because you have been through some Saturdays. Are you and I people who count people's sorrow? They'll keep their tears. We have a choice. He can say, this isn't fair. I don't deserve it. Or you can see what God can do. Please give me like two more minutes because I don't want to end just with this. You know what I'm going to do. I point you to the cross, Kevin, you come on up every single Sunday, and I keep telling you this is not just how we get saved, this is how we grow. This is not just how we, you know, get into a relationship with God, but this is how we mature and grow. And today is no different. Today is no different. Because if you walk out of here without this truth, you've missed the whole thing. And the truth is this, last point, Jesus enters into our Saturday so that we could enter into his Sunday. Church, is this good news to anybody? See, here's what you need to know. (laughs) What you need to know is that right after this story, the next following verses, the religious leaders begin to plot ultimately Jesus' death. In the book of John, it's so clear. It's this point because they're going, he's raising people from the dead. The city's going to be out of control. We got to do something that's when they start plotting. And Jesus knows. So pictures this with me. As Jesus is walking up to the, he's walking up to the tomb, he hears a voice that says, you raise him up, you're going to be buried six feet under. He hears a voice that says, you interrupt this funeral, it's going to be your funeral. And he does what? He hears a voice that says, you interrupt this funeral, it's going to be your own funeral. He does what? He says, fine. That's why I came. Fine? That's why you came? Yeah. That's why I came. Why would you not trust someone like him? Why would you not trust someone like him? The truth of the gospel is because of what he did. 
God's not up there going, hold on with everything you have. Just pull yourself by the butcher. The truth of the gospel says, no, he's hanging on to you. He's hanging on to me. On days when we feel like I can't take another step, he is holding on to you and he says, I will never let you go. Does that answer the question why? No. Does it enable you and me to entrust ourselves to him? And maybe, just maybe say, are you present in this too? So here's what I'm going to need you to do, because I need you to be the body of Christ today. I need you to be the body. What do I mean? I'm going to ask those of us that are going through a Saturday, or maybe you've been through a long Saturday. Maybe it's been days, weeks, months, years, a Saturday. You know exactly who you are. I'm just going to ask right now for you to just stand from where you are, and we want to be the body of Christ, and we just want to blanket you and come around you. Okay? Come on. One person, don't be shy. What's it? Your pride, really? I'm too proud to stand. Are you serious? Come on, come on. I don't want to yell at you. I don't mean to yell at you. Stand up from where you are if you are going through a Saturday. Come on, come on. If you are smack dab in the middle of a Saturday, if you are in that place of unanswered prayer, you're in the place of loss, you're in the place of mourning grief, you are in that place of God confusion, you are in that place in between, please stand. Please, please, please. I implore you to stand. A few more seconds. We just want to love on you. We just want to love on you. Stand. Stand, please. Stand from where you are. Please stand from where you are. Please stand from where you are. A few more seconds. A few more seconds. A few more seconds. Come on. If you are sitting there going, I know, if you are literally having this internal conversation, I need to stand, but I don't want to, you're straight up, just straight up saying no to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Stand from where you are. A few more seconds. church, family, everybody look up. You see these men and women, these beautiful souls creating the image of God? What I need you and me to do now is I need you, church, to be the church. And here's what that means. I don't care if you have no idea who they are. You relate to him in a way, the connection that he, it's profound because of Jesus. What I need you to do, for those of you that are sitting near these folks right now, is I need you to stand. I need you to stand and get around them, get behind them, get beside them. Just Move from your pews if you need to, okay? And if you can't physically get close enough to them to put your hand on them, then you could put your hand on someone who's standing next to them. But I need every single soul. I need every single soul that is standing to be wrapped, to be blanketed by the body, by the church. You hear me? Come on. I need you and me to be the body of Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful sight. Come on. Everybody, please be the church. Look around. If there's anybody, if there's anybody right now who is alone, standing alone, they need to be covered. They need to be blanketed. In the next couple minutes, I need you to pray with me. I need you and me to pray. And you don't even need to know their name. Pray the truths that were preached today. Pray for truths like God. May they know and sense to the depths of their soul your love for them. God, may they know 
that your glory will be displayed good work in them God that may they may they know pray that they would trust that he can but sometimes he waits but they could trust him in the meantime pray for truth pray for truth you're speaking and praying truth into their lives right now so listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and I'll give you a couple minutes just pray just pray for that precious soul precious love soul Let's be the church. Let's pray together. We lift them up. We lift them up. May your truth break forth. May they come to know the love of Christ. May they sense and know the love, the love, the love of Jesus. Know that you can. And that sometimes you Wait, but we can trust you. We can trust you. We can trust you in the meantime. May they see clearly what God can do, what God can do, what God can do. May they see and to know. May your spirit, may your spirit, may your spirit, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And those of you that are being prayed over, what I want to ask you to do right now before we end is to pray for the people that are around you. Because here's the thing, those of you that are praying for that person, your Saturday is around the corner. It will come. And you're going to need them to do for you what you've done for them. Remember that. Remember that. Remember that. If you are privileged and blessed to be in a good season, remember that what you've done for someone today is what you're going to need for them to do to you. So those of you that receive prayer, take a moment now to pray for those that are surrounding you that the truth of God, the Holy Spirit would penetrate to use to speak to them. Pray. 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 Pray.